questions you always had. The answers you were never given. The place to seek the truth. Welcome to Veritas. Although close encounters with alien spacecraft are reported as far back as the reign of Pharaoh Thutmosis III in Egypt, it wasn't until the 20th century that UFO sightings and extraterrestrial encounters were truly documented due to advances in technology and record-keeping, as well as the vast increase in incidents, particularly with military forces. Tonight's special guest discusses his extensive research and the verifiable evidence he's discovered and presents a comprehensive military history of armed confrontations between humans and extraterrestrials in the 20th and 21st centuries. If you're a newcomer, welcome home. To listen to tonight's full interview and all of our material, join the Veritas family and click on the subscribe button at veritasradio.com. You can subscribe with a credit card, PayPal, cash, check, money order, and even cryptocurrency. We are now accepting Bitcoin, Litecoin, and Ethereum. Don't forget to visit the Veritas store for focused life force energy, MMS, CBD pure hemp oil, Divinia water, pure organic sulfur, flash drives with all our Sanitas and Veritas seasons, and other great products. And if you want to get in touch with Mel, want to be a guest on this radio program, have a guest suggestion, or have feedback, just click on the contact button of our website at veritasradio.com. And if you're listening on YouTube, like, subscribe, and share it. And click the bell to be notified when new interviews are available. And now, here's your host, Mel Fabregas. Today's special guest is Frank Joseph, who was the editor-in-chief of Ancient American Magazine from 1993 until 2007. He is the author of several books, including Before Atlantis, An Advanced Civilization of Prehistoric America. His latest book is titled Military Encounters with Extraterrestrials, The Real War of the Worlds, which will be the focus of tonight's interview. His website is ancientamerican.com. Frank Joseph joins us directly from the Upper Mississippi Valley. Hello, Mr. Joseph, and welcome to Veritas. Thank you so much, Mel. That's uh, quite a hard introduction to follow, but I'll do the best I can. May I call you Frank? Yeah, sure. Thank you. Well, first, I think it would be important after reading the book, because we discuss this all the time here, but you have really, really taken this a step further with a lot of these cases. And I think first, it would be very important to begin with the seven major categories of encounters. And even though our audience is well-versed about this, it would be refreshing in our minds. Can you define the seven categories? Yes, I'll definitely run through them for you. Uh, these categories, it should be understood by your listeners, are not hard and fast. They're just guidelines, that's all, for us to sort of get a, a handle on this question. And uh, that's all they are. But I think uh, they help to illuminate it. Well, there's close encounters of the first kind, which are visual sightings of an unidentified flying object. There's close encounters of the second kind, this is uh, interference by a UFO in the functioning of an earthly vehicle or an electronic device we have down here, or leaving behind other kinds of physical evidence. Close encounters of the third kind, um, after the famous or infamous movie was made about it, close encounters of the third kind is a human in the presence of an extraterrestrial. Close encounters of the fourth kind is a human abducted by extraterrestrials. Close Encounters of the Fifth Kind is a direct communication between extraterrestrials and humans. Close Encounters of the Sixth Kind is the death of a human or an animal associated with a UFO or extraterrestrial sighting. Close Encounters of the Seventh Kind is the creation of a human-alien hybrid being either by direct sexual reproduction or by artificial scientific methods. Um, I should say that we're going to be talking about here as a new category, close encounters of the eighth kind. And that's why I wanted to discuss the seven kinds first, because you add an eighth category. What is this eighth category? Close encounters of the eighth kind are military confrontations between human combatants and extraterrestrials. It's important, I think, uh, this last classification because it encapsulates all the previous 
seven classifications. Again, this is not; these are not laws or anything. They're just put down to help us to understand these sure. things. But nonetheless, um, they do. And what I found uh, particularly, well, I don't know how else to put it, but I got kind of powerful putting it to, this book together. And what makes this book unique, there are, of course, are thousands of books on UFOs. And I was very reluctant to write this because I'm not a ufologist, but I, I am a reporter, and I do have a background in military reporting. Um, but what I found putting this book together, that because it relies upon military reports, upon news reports, and mostly very reliable news reports, also upon the records of MUFON and other uh, credible organizations like that, that the amount, the vast amount of background material, documented material, I've, I've never really encountered this in any other writing that I've, I've seen on this subject. I didn't set out to do this, but it, it turned out, as I was putting this information together, I was thinking, wow, uh, every incident that I have in here is not theoretical. And as you see at the back of the book, it's quite a profuse uh, resource material, uh, endnote section. So the book, I think, Military Encounters with Extraterrestrials, and I, I don't mean to, to blow my own horn in this, uh, but I think that this book has conceivably um, the greatest collection of hard evidence that you can fit between two covers that I've I've seen just about any place else. And this is not to take away from the really terrific books that have been written on the subject, and I defer to them uh, and the more professional ufologists uh, in the book. Uh, so it's it turned out to be more than I expected, quite honestly. And this is what impressed me a lot while reading the book, because I know, actually, I did not know that you were not a ufologist. If you read this book, you think that you've been at this for decades by reading it. But you have discussed so many other topics in the past, but you have a reporting style that's very, very clear, very black and white, and you just document the evidence as, it, as it's presented to you. So what motivated you to, to write this book if you were not a ufologist before? Uh, two things motivated me. Um, the first was uh, by accident. I think it was back in the early 1990s. The exact date is in my book, for whatever that's worth. It was around 1991, 1993, something like that. I was in Egypt. I was in the Cairo Museum, which, as our listeners are probably aware, is the greatest repository for information and knowledge and records documents on ancient Egypt. And I was making myself uh, available to this uh, terrific collection of materials that is available there. And the materials are translated into numerous languages. The materials are translated also by uh, tremendous experts in linguistics and everything. So what you're reading is the real thing. I do not read um, ancient Egyptian very well. I, I get a little bit of it, but certainly not enough to uh, translate an entire document. Well, to make a long story short, I was studying the work of a particular monarch, monarch and uh, his name was... Thutmosis III. And the reason why I was after him to read about him was because he was the king of Egypt at a very uh, wonderful period in their history, uh, literally a golden age. This was in the New Kingdom. And um, it was the, the triumph of early science and all so much of the greatness that we associate with ancient Egypt. So I'm reading these original documents about him. And one I came across I'd never seen or heard of before was called the Thule Papyrus. And the Thule Papyrus is not a religious document. It is not about mythology. It is a bureaucrat's chronology of um, the uh, one of the, the ruling periods for Pharaoh Thutmosis III. What went on? It's a chronology with a little, uh, a few paragraphs, maybe at most, for the things that happened. And while I was reading this, th uh, this Thule papyrus, I came across an event that I had to reread. I, I couldn't believe what I was reading. Uh, it, it talked about an event that happened in uh, his reign, and they have the exact date. It happened at the equivalent of our understanding of the past of 1479 B.C., 
and I give you how long, I give you an idea how long ago that was. That was three thousand, almost three thousand five hundred years ago, and it, this document, uh, the Tuli Papyrus. By the way, Tuli is just to be brief about this is named after the uh, Italian Egyptologist uh, who found this document and translated it. And it was interesting, even with uh, Ernesto Tulli, he trans he found it in about 1935 or 36, something like that, doing his archaeological work in Egypt. And when he translated it, he was so shocked by the trans his own translation that he never declared it publicly. He never tried to sell it or take credit for it. He put it in a personal trunk. And was only after he died uh, in the late 1940s, about uh, 10 or 15 years after he found it, that his relatives, in going through his effects, found the Thule Papyrus, couldn't read any of it at all, but it obviously looked like a valuable document. They turned it over to the authorities. They translated it, were shocked by it, and had it retranslated by a Russian and by an American. And they both came up with very similar uh, translations. And I'll tell you what the translation, what this event was about. It describes uh, the Tuli Papyrus, this section of it, document one, actually, said that uh, the date, the precise date is missing. We know it's 1479 B.C., and it was in February. Some The exact date was mentioned, but is gone. But we do know that it was lost. But we do know that it was in February. And in February of 1479... On a clear afternoon, a, a very strange object was seen in the sky, flying low and slow over the entire Nile Valley. And this object is described literally as either a fiery disk, a disk of fire, or a ring that was on fire, a metallic ring, a golden ring that was on fire made no noise, was not going particularly fast, flew over the Nile Valley. It went from south to north and disappeared over the Mediterranean Sea. Well, this caused a tremendous sensation. But what happened the following day, in, in February again, was that the disk returned uh, in its same starting position somewhere over probably Sudan, what is today Sudan, this would be the Upper Nile Valley, only it returned in company with um, an uncounted number of objects exactly like it, a fleet of them, a flotilla of these burning rings, or as they say, a direct translation is fiery disc, fiery discs. They flew low and slow, over the Nile Valley. This caused terrific social dislocation, uh, great fear, and the, the pharaoh himself was notified, Thutmosis III, and he saw the objects, as probably did hundreds of thousands of people, because it flew the whole length of the Nile uh, Valley that Egypt controlled, which was, of course, substantial. And he was under terrific... Uh, political pressure to do something because the pharaoh is in charge of everything. The only thing he could do was call out the army. And the army made a physical presence, but there was nothing that they could do, of course, and um, except to calm the, the population. The disks are then described as following the same path as the original one the day before, um, exiting over the Nile Delta and flying away uh, over the Mediterranean. Now, the scribe who wrote this, we don't know his name, uh, he concludes his report in an untypical way, because if you read the rest of the Thule Papyrus, he writes in a very methodical and unemotional way about what happened during Thutmose III's reign. But here, he couldn't help himself, and he says, this is the way it ends. Quote, thereupon they, the fire disks, went up higher, directed towards the south, and vanished. The objects represented, quote, a marvel that never occurred since the foundation of this land. And it was ordered 
that the event be recorded for his majesty in the annals of the house of life to be remembered forever, unquote. Now, what's remarkable about this is that when you understand the, the origins of this report, that it was just a straight report, uh, it was also the very first military report that we have about confrontation, if you can call it that, or a sighting, however you want to categorize it, between human beings and what appears to be the possessors of craft uh, that don't belong to our, our world. These are the same types of objects that are seen today that were seen 3,500 years ago. So arguments that are sometimes made that, oh, well, the UFOs that we're seeing are very possibly or probably they're examples of modern uh, secret military technology. Well, perhaps some of them are, but obviously all of them are not. And these things have been cited consistently, and I mean consistently, from 3,500 years ago until the present time. And uh, that's that's what this book is about. I wanted to be as comprehensive about this as possible, but that's that's what got me started. When I read this back in 93, I guess it was, I didn't know what to do with the information. I discussed it with my friends. I didn't publicize anything about it, never wrote about UFOs, but I collected a lot of information. So the information that's in, in the book, and there's a lot there, uh, I began collecting really in 1993 secretly, yeah, more or less secretly. And I decided, well, maybe someday I'll write about it. But I was very hesitant, as I say, because of my lack of any ufology background. But what cha- the other thing that changed me, to answer your question, why I wrote this book, was because of the U.S. government. Until 2017, just two years ago, the U.S. government regarded all sightings and experiences of this kind as total nonsense. People associated with it were crazy and had no value whatsoever. But in 2017, that was the way it was. That was the U.S. government's position throughout the 40s, the 50s, the 60s, the 70s, the 80s, and the 90s. But in 2017, they changed. And in 2017, the U.S. Navy admitted that their pilots had engaged UFOs over uh, Southern California and the waters off of Southern California that the U.S. Navy flotilla there had been buzzed by these objects for days and uh, the, the gun cameras were released to the public. The U.S. Navy came out and said, yes, this actually happened. The pilots were allowed to say what happened. Then it came out that the U.S. government, which had denied consistently for decades that they had no interest in UFOs, it was all a bunch of hogwash, the U.S. The US government admitted that they had spent $22 million just investigating UFOs. If they didn't believe in UFOs, if that was a lot of hogwash, they certainly wouldn't have spent this huge amount of money. Of course, that's only the tip of the iceberg. It's a lot more than that. But they admitted to that. And since that, since 2017... There has been a progression of disclosure that has come out. It didn't just stop with uh, the U.S. Navy's admission and the U.S. government's admission of the $22 million expenditure. There have been others. We can discuss those, perhaps. And I figured, well, if the government is now admitting to talk about it, then here it goes. I might as well put it together. And... uh, so those two things, finding the Thule papyrus in the Cairo Museum itself, and then uh, the U.S. government saying that, well, it's real after all. And uh, that's when I decided to do it. I have a feeling this interview will turn into a UFO classic very soon because what you're saying is resonating so much with me. Because I started doing this in 2008, and I'll explain later. Your story of Milton Torres, that's what gave birth to this radio program. But in 2017 is exactly when I started telling people, folks, focus on TV, on the TV right now. No longer are you seeing serious researchers going to serious programs to discuss this topic. Before, they would play the X-Files music. They would joke. They would just change the editorial of the story. Now, it's been taken seriously. I would be talking seriously about this topic for, for decades. But now... When the government finally came out, the population is finally listening, but in a serious way. So you obviously noticed this. 
Well, I think it was pretty obvious. And the newspapers can no more be flippant and stupid about uh, and insulting people like yourself and denigrating people who are trying to seriously look at this problem. Uh, They're no longer flippant about it. The tone in the media has changed. So I think that we are definitely uh, going through this gradual process. I don't know why. I can't answer that question, but I, I do know that it is happening. I think something is afoot here, and we'll discuss it later because I like to go in chronological order. You talk about Mars, and you see the government talking about Mars, and the fact that I'm getting information saying that they found life on Mars in the 1970s, but they haven't been able to release it. But we'll talk talk about that later. Going back to this Egypt story, it's fascinating because I have discussed the Aurora crash in the late 1890s. I've discussed the paintings three, four hundred years ago that depict what seems to be UFOs in the sky in these paintings, but never have I heard a story 3,500 years old discussing. We've talked about the flying chariots, the vimanas from the the ancient um, Vedas, but never, never this. So this is new to me. Well, the stories of the vimanas and so forth are valid. They're wonderful, but nonetheless, they are um, presented in myth. Now, this right. does not mean that this people were making up stories because people had important things to say, pre-literate people, people that did not have generally well-known writing systems thousands of years ago, but they had important things to them. And the only way to pass on that information was to encapsulate it in myth. Myth is not a lie. It's the exact opposite. Myth is a truth. Myth is a way that you uh, incorporate an idea and perpetuate it. Otherwise, these myths would not have lasted for thousands and thousands of years. If they were just lies and fairy tales, they'd be mostly forgotten. But the great power of a myth is that at its core is a great truth. Myth is nothing more than the poetic rendition of a fact. And that's why the Vimana stories are, are valuable and true. But the difference between the myth of the Vimanas and the stories of the story in ancient Egypt, or not the story, the report in ancient Egypt, Thutmosis III's time, is that that's exactly what it was. It'd be the equivalent of reading a newspaper or a chronicle, a history. No myth there. This story is just told the way things happened. That was the bureaucrat's job who reported that, was to report everything accurately, truthfully, of what happened in this man's reign. And that's what makes it so shocking. And why we don't hear about it is because when this was released, the translations were uh, made in the mid to late late 1950s. They were published in the early 1960s. And the, uh, the, the, the vast veil of silence that fell over this discovery was truly disturbing, so that not even many professional archaeologists have ever heard of the Thule papyrus. And there's a lot of other great stuff in there, nothing like that, things that are great uh, pertinent to Egyptology. So there's important, but nobody knows or hears about it at all. It's never discussed. And uh, there it is. Isn't the real... it, it, it's going to be discussed now. Isn't the real definition of myth a signed affidavit by priests and kings? I think that's a I think that's a legitimate way to look at it. You have to be able to present this information to your people. And if your people are not literate because you don't have uh, public writing systems, uh, you have to be able to present it in the, in the proper way. It's no different than today with television or anything else. It's just a matter of presenting things. But I think that your definition is, is certainly valid. Now, we're going to be jumping around because there's so much material in your book, and I want to be able to extract a lot. But, folks, you have to buy it if you want to see the rest of it. It's really, really comprehensive. But while reading the book, I found the story of Dr. John Brandenburg. Very interesting, especially with all the talk about NASA getting ready to confirm. They found, as I said before, evidence of life on Mars in the 70s. But tell us about Dr. John Brandenburg and what he said in his own book, Dead Mars, Dying Earth, what did he say about Mars, and how did he arrive to his conclusion? 
Well, I think it's important for our listeners to understand that Dr. John Vandenberg is one of the most uh, prominent and brilliant and, um, I would say, really influential scientists in the United States today. He uh, is involved in uh, a great deal of the um, synthetic experimentation involved in modern electronic development. He always has been. He's highly respected by his colleagues. And uh, he's at the, working at the University of Wisconsin in Madison, or was at one time. And I first heard him on the radio about three years ago. He made some statements that I found completely unacceptable and totally unbelievable, incredible. But when I learned about his truly stellar uh, scholarly background, I figured, how could it be possible that a man as brilliant as him has gone crazy? <laughs> and uh, so... I, I asked if I could interview him for a uh, an Australian magazine at the time called New Dawn, which some of our listeners might be familiar with. Oh, sure. And um, so I've, I interviewed him. Uh, I would say that interview I had with him was one of the uh, the great um, uh, changes in my life. It was just absolutely astounding. It's so hard to get one's head around it. I won't go into the whole long thing, but what Dr. Brandenburg discovered uh, he was not the first to discover this, by the way, but he was the most courageous to discuss it. No other scientists had. They had known since well, the late 1980s or not, or even earlier that I, I even hate to I hesitate to even discuss it because it's it's so impossible to believe. But nonetheless, uh, Mars was the victim of a major atomic attack, an atomic attack that made it, um, reduced it to the dead world that it is today, an atomic attack. And the this is not theory, uh, it's not science fiction. Um, to make it very briefly here, I won't go into the law aspects of it, but I do in the book to some degree, and certainly in his own book, he does a better job of it than I do. Uh, there is a uh, trace element that's easily found on Mars called xenon, and this trace element, um, which is very easily found, is because it's ubiquitous on the planet. It's found everywhere. And that in itself is very bizarre, because xenon is associated uh, with uh, nuclear uh, fusion, with the results of high-intensity uh, nuclear blast. Um, it's not associated, by the way, with... Uh, 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 an asteroid collision or a meteorite collision. When that takes place, then you have iridium all over the place. Iridium is what is associated with uh, Chicxulub, which was the uh, asteroid that collided with our planet 65 million years ago, and they established that that indeed, ha indeed happened because of the vast amounts of iridium that they found associated with that level. Well, we don't find iridium, very little iridium on Mars, probably a little bit more than on Earth, but not much more. But they did find vast amounts of xenon. And Dr. Brandenburg was the first, after verifying that, in fact, that it's, it's, it's there on Mars, that it has vast amounts of xenon, this trace element of nuclear attack, nuclear blast, that he went public with it with his book and on the radio. I had a radio interview that I was able to hear. And um, he took the um, study of this xenon on Mars a little bit further after establishing that this xenon is definitely there. He took a little further and was able to um, determine the, the date that all this xenon um, occurred. And apparently it all occurred at once. After this one event horizon that created uh, the vast deposits of xenon on the surface of Mars never occurred afterwards. There's no evidence that occurred before. And the dates fluctuate, but incredible as it may seem, it could be that the blast effects on Mars go back four billion years ago. Four billion years. But how do we so, determine xenon existed? Exist? in the atmosphere of Mars. What technology detected it? Well, it doesn't take much uh, to detect it, actually. It's just what they call astrospectrography, uh, which you're able to get the, uh, I see. The, the light and so forth off of it, and you don't even have to go there, as it turns out. But now that, uh, of course, many vehicles have landed on Mars, they've brought back all kinds of samples of various uh, mineral um, changes and so forth, and but there's a visual signature, is what you're saying. Yes, 
it is, it's a signature. So we are, you know, we're looking at something that happened about the time that our world was formed, or shortly thereafter. That some were saying, or Dr. Brandenburg is saying, that some intelligent life uh, four billion years ago uh, was able to uh, muster the kind of uh, military uh, hardware to destroy another planet. But it's not to be forgotten that we are inhabiting something that's even smaller than a dust speck in a vast universe that is only beginning to, we're only beginning to appreciate with things like the Hubble telescope, uh, where our own significance and size dwindles to the sub-microscopic compared to what's out there. So the, the possibilities for everything are limitless. And um, as difficult as it is to get one's head around such a thing, and certainly in this short space of time allotted us here to discuss that, um, I think that Dr. Brandenburg makes a very powerful, simple case for its existence. And he was kind enough to uh, write the foreword for my book. The reason I wanted him to write the foreword for my book is because if his evidence for um, interplanetary warfare has taken place in the deep past, then that fits in with what I'm discussing in Military Encounters with Extraterrestrials, that uh, we also are involved in a kind of silent war and have been for more than 100 years, and that this war is on-again, off-again affair, to be sure, but people have died, uh, people have been taken prisoner, um, and uh, materials, military materials and others have been destroyed, have been damaged, and uh, it's not discussed. It's not, not talked about. And I think there are very cogent reasons why it's not talked about. And those reasons are more clear than why it is being talked about now. What is in the offing? What, what more can we expect? And uh, that's basically what, uh, what the book is about. You have an impressive number of books that you've written in the past, and I'm, I'm surprised that this is the first time you've ever been to Veritas here, and I hope it's not the last one, because we have a lot to discuss in the future. But your books deal with ancient America, Lemuria, Atlantis, Egypt, you name it. After discussing what you just said about Mars, do you find a correlation or a connection between what could be Atlantis, Mars, and Homo sapiens sapiens. Well, yes, there are some tenuous things. I try to stay away from that mostly because um, I respect very much the concept when dealing with something like UFOs that we stick as close as we can to the facts, the known facts. And this doesn't mean we should not speculate or theorize. I think that's equally important. But it's important that we separate uh, speculation sure. from the documentation. And um, perhaps in the future they will cross over. Speculation and theory, of course, are today. A theory today is a speculation, and then tomorrow it becomes fact. That happens all the time. Um, so we're to consider both. As far as relationship with Atlantis and so forth, and uh, Lemuria and these things, uh, I do see some possible uh, correlations. I, I really prefer not to talk about them uh, quite as much at this point because um, I, I really can't establish them. In my other books on Atlantis and Lemuria, I try to stay away there, too, from too much speculation. Of course, you have to theorize that not all the dots are available to us, unlike the story of the UFOs. Uh, where the documentation is all there, it's all laid out, and my book is entirely composed of documentation. Whereas in the, my books on Lemuria and Atlantis, I have to try to connect the dots when not all the dots are there, because we're dealing with something that took place a very, very long time ago, unlike what we're dealing with, something that's happening right now. I understand you, you cross your, your T's and you dot your I's, but I'm sure you understand why, after speaking with you about Egypt and 3,500 years ago, the, 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 the encounters that they had, and this possibility that Mars could have been nuked to smithereens, and this is why there's no life there anymore. And perhaps if they had the technology to escape that planet, maybe they're here. You can understand why I'm curious as to if there's a connection. 
Well, I, I think the best way that I can address that is that we must keep in mind that this sighting, this highly well-documented, credible sighting that was documented 3,500 years ago, uh, was peaceful. There was no exchange of uh, violence. Uh, there was no attempt by either side to uh, cause loss of life or property. And as far as I understand, and I, I may be wrong in this, I haven't because it's a huge swath of time, from that time until all the, until literally 1916 <laughs> in our time. In other words, from 1479 B.C. To World War One. Until World War One, I was not able to credibly establish that there had been any violent exchanges. Sightings, yes, absolutely, a lot of sightings, possibly even some abductions that took place. Not that many, but definitely some. But you can draw a line in the sand historically in 1916 between the relationship between human beings and extraterrestrials and what happened afterwards. It's a clear demarcation, and that I find um, less interesting than alarming. Let's move on, and then we'll start in chronological order, but I have to ask you this. Why all of a sudden we can invest trillions to explore Mars? Why not Antarctica? Heck, even most of our oceans are unexplored. That's a very interesting question, isn't it? Why are we... I, I, actually, you're not the first or the only person that has asked that question. Why are we going... I mean, it's great to go to outer space. It's wonderful. But how about our own planet? I mean, if we got, got any priorities, it's, it's disturbing. Is it because there are things down there in the ocean that they don't want to see? And I would say definitely yes. And are there things in Antarctica that are not supposed to be talked about? Well, there were at one time. I don't know that they're still there now, but I know they were there at one time. Did you know that at the height of the Cold War, now this is another unbelievable thing. Uh, when I start putting this book together, I mean, I just got one shock of incredulity after another, and I had to really fact-check this material. But I was shocked to learn that in 1959, at the height of the Cold War between the United States and the USSR, when we were many times on the knife's edge of war between the two, in 1959, the United States Air Force and the Soviet Air Force teamed up together to nuclear bomb Antarctica, not once but twice, with uh, what's called aerial burst nuclear attacks. Why on earth would something like that happen? The the, the description of that that and they, it's admitted that it took place. It got very little press. If you can imagine that, you think this would be headlines around the world? It wasn't. It was relatively small, brief coverage. Well, it was just a, a joint nuclear test exercise. What? I mean, who on earth would believe such a thing? They detonated not one but two nuclear airbursts over Antarctica. Now, if you read the earlier part of my book, you'll see why that happened. <laughs> this is not fishbowl. This is this came in 1962, Operation Fishbowl. This has nothing to do with fishbowl, right? Oh, no, no. I think you're right. Yeah, that was the correct operation uh, name. Yeah. So are we talking about Operation Fishbowl in 1962? Yeah, that was it. Yeah, that was A high-altitude nuclear test? I, I got that mixed up with the geophysical year. You have to, I have to apologize because there are so, oh, so yeah. much information here in my little noodle. I can't keep it 100% <laughs> straight. That's why it's good to write things down. I'm not a good druid. I can't remember <laughs> everything like I should. We're not so going to judge you. i write it all down. I don't want to mislead any. I'm glad you brought that to my attention. No, that's, you that's go 3,500 years in the past. I'm not going to judge you for three years. <laughs> well, you should. You should. There's just so much crazy uh, material in here. That is enough to drive you crazy yourself. Actually, when I was finishing writing this book, I could I could hardly wait for it to be over with. I, I was getting I couldn't even stand it anymore. It was becoming so intense that I I just was glad when it was done. 
and I don't look forward to writing a sequel to it at all. I will not. I don't want to write any more about it. I mean, I can talk about it, but when I was piling up all this, I had no idea what I was getting into when I wrote this book. I really don't. I think I was kind of interested in the subject, especially now because of the disclosure going on. I figured, well, it was my wife's idea. She said, well, you write all these military books. Why don't you write a book about the UFOs, just a military history of the UFOs? So I looked around the internet and see if anybody else had done that. And there had been there had been an R, some excellent books about uh, UFOs and military encounters, but not on the comprehensive scale, not from World War One to the present day. You know, just certain sections, the Foo Fighters and so forth. It's valuable stuff. It's great books. So I figured I'm going to write the first comprehensive history of this. And boy, I I don't know if I had known what I was getting into, I might not have done it for my own mental health. I mean, it's it's horrible. Well, we're glad you did, because it took you 26 years since you got the idea of writing it. But you couldn't have waited for a better time. Because That's what yes. I thought, yeah. I thought the time was right. I wouldn't have done it before. But, hell, if the U.S. government is saying, well, we spent over $22 million on this, well, then I'll go ahead and do it. Precisely. I have a collection here of, of books that, from the 1950s, 1960s that I bought from a, an estate sale many years ago. And I wonder... If I should write a book in the future to just dive in very, very old stories, military stories, and so on. But as you said, I didn't want to because of the ridicule factor and the the, the media. But right now, this book of yours came out at a time where people are really paying attention and taking it seriously. But let's let's start. Folks, this is going to get really interesting. Let's go in chronological order, and we'll just dive as much as we can. But while World War I was brewing in Europe, did we have any sightings? by our military here in the United States? Up until 1916, not that I can determine. No, nothing. Uh, as you uh, rightly point out, there was this uh, incident that took place in the late 19th century. There were also a, a large, huge number of sightings, UFO sightings, up and down the Mississippi Valley, and actually in other parts of the country. Literally, it might have been millions of Americans that saw these things, certainly hundreds of thousands of them. And then after those sightings, uh, about 1898, 1897, I don't know the exact date, uh, they fell off. And so far as I can see, in the early part of the 20th century, things were quiet. Something happened, though, in 1914. Not only was this a world war, there actually had been world wars before. They weren't called world wars, but certainly the war that uh, the American Revolution was a part of was England's attempt, literally to put it straight, just conquer the world. And they did. They created the empire, and that was a world war. And there were others going way back into the past. Rome, for example, came close to having a world war, world conquest, and so on. So World War I wasn't that unique. But what made World War I unique was what um, the British did. And I don't blame it on the British, because other, co- other countries are doing this too, but nonetheless, the British did this. The British created the first bomber in 1913 actually put it to use for the first time in 1914. Now, if you see a picture of this rickety old aircraft, had a top speed of about 70 miles, 75 miles an hour, could fly, luckily, 300 miles. Uh, But what made this aircraft um, special was that for the first time, it could carry explosives into the air, and it could drop explosives. Now, admittedly, it was only like about 125 pounds, but nonetheless, that's exactly what happened. In uh, early uh, early in the war, I think it was November 1914, the wars began July 1914, uh, the British, with uh, this one aircraft, uh, bombed enemy um, fortifications along a railroad and did probably slight damage and maybe killed somebody, maybe not. But that was the first time that that had ever happened. Well, it doesn't take much of... Uh, an intelligent objectivity to look at that aircraft, that spindly, ineffectual aircraft, and in recognizing the speed, the rapidity of human development in the scientific revolution, to realize that if human beings could make a flying weapon that could drop bombs on its fellow human beings, it would be a very short time interpolating from our human species that they would be putting atomic bombs in space. And that's exactly what happened, because the the time from 1914, when this 
ridiculous little attack came. Jump to only less than 30 years later, and what were we doing? We had an atomic bomb that we did not hesitate to drop on our fellow human beings, not once, but twice. And we also developed, human beings developed, a missile that was now capable of leaving the Earth's atmosphere. It wasn't long after that that the ICBM was invented. So we're talking within the space of less, far less than 100 years, development from this crummy British bomber to the point where we can now launch atomic bombs into outer space. And that is a very disturbing development for an intelligent species that lives in outer space. Because how much more time is does this species, ourselves, how much more time does it need to develop uh, atomic weapons or even more powerful weapons throughout the solar system and beyond? We become a threat. And so that required some kind of a response. And that response took place in beginning in early 1916, especially because after that raid in 1914, the British created the true, a really true a bomber, the Hanley Page. The Germans answered with the Gotha bombers, and both sides began dropping heavier ordnance on each other, killing far more people. And this was a disturbing development, a new development. It had never happened before in all of human history. From the time of Thutmose with his army of spears and bows and arrows, and then afterwards, long afterwards, developing gunpowder and so forth. If human beings want to kill themselves, fine. Uh, but when they take their weapons into outer space, then we're, we're a little concerned. And to show their concern, very strange and horrible things started happening in early 1916. In 1916, um, the United States was uh, the major arms supplier for the Western Allies. By 1916, the uh, French and the British and the Russians had virtually exhausted themselves. No one had assumed that World War I would go on for more than a few months. The, the talk was always in 1914, everybody, the boys will be home by Christmas. Well, several Christmases passed, and it didn't look like anybody was going home soon. And so uh, the Germans had a pretty good supply still of uh, gunpowder and so forth, and chemicals for their war effort. But the French and British did not, even with their empire. And so the major supplier for arms, especially explosives, was the DuPont factories across the United States. Um, the DuPont factories were, of course, had made there. Mr. DuPont and his family had become phenomenally rich because they had uh, pioneered and made possible our own civil war. And now, 19, by 1916, 1915, we were the world's, or at least the Western Allies, supplier of high explosives. And uh, that was great for the DuPonts because their factories were working overtime, huge profits were pouring in. But at the same time, of course, the United States is getting indebted, literally, to uh, Britain and France. They are getting indebted to us. And uh, this manufacturing by the DuPonts had reached by, oh, long before 1916, high levels of efficiency and safety. So that uh, from, from uh, 1865, that far back, until 1915, there had been no serious accidents at any of the DuPont factories. There had been a minor fire at one of them. Nobody was hurt. Certainly nobody was killed. No major damage took place. The, uh, the security involved, especially when World War I was still on, had just begun actually, was intensified uh, against the possibility of espionage. And so um, they were safe places to work. But until 1916, in uh, February 1916, uh, the first of a number of uh, munitions plants, all owned by the DuPont factory, um, this is all mostly east of the Mississippi, exploded. And it exploded with uh, horrific violence. No one was killed. It was after hours. But the, uh, the factory was utterly demolished. Um, at first, it was thought that it was just a... A mistake of some kind, some 
error. It could happen. But then very shortly thereafter, days afterwards, another plant, almost 100 miles away in Delaware, exploded with uh, terrific violence, uh, also destroyed that plant. Uh, that, that was in Delaware, the original uh, plant, uh, the Black Tom plant, that was uh, located in New Jersey. Between February, late February 1916, all the way into early December 1916, literally dozens of arms plants across the eastern, mostly the eastern part of the United States were destroyed. Uh, the amount of damage was horrific. Incredibly, nobody was killed. Some people were injured. Um, and the when this was going on, the, the thought was that these were German agents that were running around blowing up these plants, these arms plants. No one stopped to think how incredibly stupid that would have been for the Germans who were doing everything conceivable to keep America out of the war, to keep America neutral, and to have uh, German agents running around blowing up these things. And eventually one would get caught or even to be, uh, be under suspicion of such a thing would be extremely detrimental to German-American relations. So the Germans consistently denied that they were doing anything like that and explained why. But the newspapers uh, were anxious to get America into the war. Um, the reason for that is because the newspapers were financially linked with the DuPonts, who, matter of fact, literally owned a great deal of the newspapers, had tremendous impact, as you might imagine, on the government. I'm not going to get into the long and short of these, these dark politics that ran the world at that time. But these explosions took place. Now, what's interesting about that, I, how can you conclude that there were UFOs involved? Well, in almost every incidence where these plants were demolished, for the first time, what was described as unusual Mexican hats, metallic Mexican hats, were flying over the... <laughs> Mexican uh, hats. They, because they didn't know about UFOs. Right, no, right. They had like, the slightest conception of people from another planet or another time or world. No, it just didn't enter into any conception at all. That's but the closest thing that looks like, yes. It was described as Mexican hats. Sometimes it was described as an airplane, but an airplane that made no noise. The, the people that saw these objects... And these objects appeared before and after the explosions. I must admit, there is no evidence uh, that anyone saw a direct correlation between the appearance of these objects and the explosions themselves. This does not mean they didn't do it. They didn't cause it. From, I mean, who knows what methods they have for doing it. But nonetheless, these objects were seen, and they were seen and observed by plant factory security officers. They were observed by police officers. They were observed even by uh, mayors and politicians, workers themselves, people on the streets. It wasn't just a few people, but they were described not invariably, not even mostly, but many times as metallic Mexican hats that flew around and made no noise. Um, Nonetheless, it was believed that these were being done by German uh, uh, espionage agents who somehow were able to elude the authorities. The, uh, the amount of destruction that took place actually did affect uh, the amount of imports uh, that were uh, munitions imports that DuPonts were able to send to Western Europe. Uh, but nonetheless, um, uh, they continued with their manufacturer. Well, Occam's Razor. Occam's Razor says, and if you had to give an explanation to the public, that would be it. Perhaps we have some infiltrators here. That are, you know, that, that's what happened. Not that we had these Mexican hats flying around and, and, and creating havoc here. But, you know, 1903, the first flight, Wright Brothers, Less than well, a little bit more than a decade later, we're already in World War One, the yes. Red Baron, and all that. But let me ask you this first, because I I, I want to take, get your take on this. I remember my conversation with the late Edgar Mitchell. Oh, he yeah. he told me, in sixty years, my grandparents came from the east to the west in horse and buggy, and I went to the moon in just a span of sixty years. So, nineteen oh three, the first flight. Then we had commercial. 
air fly, you know, flights, we had war, we had all this revenue-oriented operations, if you want to call it that way. How come we haven't done that with the moon? 1969, it's 50 years, and we don't have space hotels. Everybody's talking about going to Mars. Don't you think that by now we should have at least a camera pointing at Earth from the moon and just have companies finance it, just put their logos there somewhere? Why haven't we gone back to the moon and commercialized that, just like we did with the the, uh, airline industry? Yeah, exactly. What a terrific question. People don't, uh, in the mainstream media, they don't ask that question. Because the answers can, the true answers, answers can be pretty disturbing. And we, we can't go there because there has been a base on the moon, for the, a UFO base on the moon for who knows how long, perhaps thousands of years. That's a, another mind-bending thing. I talk about a Sergeant Carl Wolf who testified uh, on a YouTube that you can see. He's obviously a very competent U.S. Air Force veteran. He was um, uh, a technician. He was a photo technician, highly regarded photo technician in the U.S. Air Force. He's very loyal to the Air Force, to this country, and he only uh, talks about what happened now uh, because... uh, the period of time in which he could not talk about it has expired. I think it's 25 or 30 years. And in 1964, he was called in, uh, the whole story is in, in my book. Uh, in 1964, five years before we supposedly went to the moon, 1964, he was called in to uh, uh, repair some uh, photo imaging equipment that was uh, picking up these large spools of uh, images that were being sent from uh, uh, satellite uh, uh, rockets that were being sent around the moon at that time, reconnaissance rockets that were being sent around the moon to to find out where would be the optimum place to uh, land somebody uh, on the moon. You know, before we went there, uh, there were many reconnaissance uh, satellites of this kind that would just examine the face of uh, of the moon to see ideal places, landing spots. And so he was called in to fix this one um, uh, uh, highly uh, uh, covert or secret, uh, top secret uh, base. And uh, he had all kinds of clearance to get in there. So... He went in and he's seeing what's wrong with this particular uh, imaging machine, which is picking up these images sent from back from the moon, and it was broken. And um, there was a, a technician in there ahead of him, and the technician was very nervous, unaccountably, and uh, said, uh, "Well, this is broken. We we need to repair in this." And so they got it to work again in, in short space of time. And this technician, who he had only met for the first time there during this repair period said, look at this. What do you make of this? And so uh, he said, well, what is this? And he says, these are images that uh, came in uh, pretty much uh, before, just before you came in here, before the machine broke down. And we're spitting out more of these things. We have quite a few of them. And what the images were, a very bizarre-looking buildings on Mars, not anything close to a natural formation. These were incredibly huge, spindly Structures. Um, was unable. You were unable to tell if they were actually tenanted, but they were. It was obviously like a a base or a small city, a town of some kind. And the buildings were completely, utterly unlike anything he had ever seen on Earth. Especially these towers, which were incredibly tall. And. Um, the man, uh, the technician said, I'm not supposed to show these things to you, but if I don't, if I don't discuss this, I'll just go insane. I can't keep it quiet, and I have to share this with somebody. And so he did. He shared it with uh, Sergeant Wolf, and Sergeant Wolf uh, kept it a secret until, I guess, earlier this century, something like that. And you can go on YouTube and uh, look at his whole story, which is terrific. So the moon has been um, a base for them for who knows how long, uh, hundreds, thousands of years. One thing I am absolutely sure of, one of the few definite conclusions that I'm able to draw from all this, is that uh, human beings have been monitored very closely 
by these extraterrestrials, whatever you want to call them, for thousands of years. For what reason, I don't know. But they have been monitoring us very, very closely. They know exactly what we are doing, what we have always been doing. And they may have interfered on some level at one time. I don't know. I don't I don't see too much of that. But they definitely began to interfere in 1916 when they start flying all their Mexican hats over uh, these um, these uh, uh, utilities that were being uh, blown up. And it was very shortly after, the, uh, not very shortly, but sometime after this last um, DuPont plant was blasted that there was the very first actual firefight uh, between uh, U.S. armed forces and one of these craft. And that took uh, place at uh, Portsmouth Naval Yard, where there were um, a number of uh, guards, U.S. Marines, excuse me, U.S. Navy personnel that were guarding a bridge at Portsmouth. This was in uh, March 1917. The, the records for this are abundant and clear. There's no, this is not hearsay. I mean, the evidence is, is there, and I present it. And in March 1917, these U.S. Navy guards were um, patrolling this bridge at Portsmouth when they were uh, approached out of the... This is very late at night. This was like about 2 or 3 in the morning. They were approached by a luminous craft that made absolutely no noise but uh, made threatening movements towards them. It, it, it like fell out of the sky and approached them in, in an attack. They fired on it. They opened fire on it. Uh, they weren't sure whether they hit it or not, but they opened fire on it. And the moment that they opened, or shortly after they opened fire on it, it just zoomed away, took off. They filed their report, uh, as accurate as it was, and they were uh, immediately uh, court-martialed. Um, they, uh, the authorities, the naval authorities, looked in to see if they were drunk or crazy or were making up a story to get out of the service or whatever. And in the middle of the court-martial, and these men's record, uh, military record was impeccable, uh, the, the uh, Navy uh, court-martial could find absolutely nothing wrong with them. But in the middle of their court-martial, uh, other uh, eyewitnesses, both military and non-military, came out and said that they had seen something that same night, only at a greater distance, that had it away from where uh, these uh, men had fired on this object. Uh, there actually was a newspaper account of this that came out, and the newspaper account predictably said, well, it was a German aircraft. Well, let me tell you, uh, no aircraft in the world <laughs> in early 1917... Could come all the way from there, transatlantic. I mean, uh, Germany is, what, 4,000 miles away or 3,500 miles away from there? Is Germany going to send an airplane over there right. or build a plane? Not, not, not only that, but there was no aircraft in the world that was capable of night flying and certainly wasn't lit up green to attack. It was supposedly a bright green to attack this. So, and also, those planes in those days, as everybody knows, were incredibly loud. The planes had no nothing to damp down their sounds at all. And the, the aircraft, you could hear them coming from miles away, and they didn't fly at high speed. You know, the top speed of a World War I plane was about 130 miles an hour. I mean, that, and most of them didn't go anywhere near that speed. And so here this thing is flying at nighttime, all lit up, going at high speed. Um, but nonetheless, the newspapers said, wow, it must be an imperial German uh, attack. And this was even before America was involved in the war. That was the craziness, that uh, the hysteria that was being manufactured at that time. After the war, in 1919 and 1920, there was a federal investigation into the destruction of those DuPont plants. And the the, the uh, federal investigators found that... Well, was- well, hold it right there. Let's leave a cliffhanger, because we have to break both segments. And when we come back, we're going to discuss more of this. I also want to ask you about Roswell and... Very, very intriguing to me, Frank, about the life of James Forstall, our very first U.S. Secretary of Defense. Was Roswell a trap that Forstall and his people put so we could retrieve a, or, or crash, deliberately crash a UFO so we could reverse engineer it? And also, I want to know what happened. Truman abruptly asked for his resignation, and three months later, he was at a psychiatric hospital and allegedly <laughs> committed suicide. I want to discuss all this and more. We're going to get really deep. How can people buy military encounters with extraterrestrials and all your other great books, Frank? 
Well, um, they can best go to Amazon.com. That's the cheapest way to get it and the fastest way. So I think that's probably the best way to do it. Excellent, folks. And your website is? It's it's AncientAmerican.com. And uh, those are the books that I have available there uh, don't deal with this subject at all because it's it's too controversial for uh, some of our some of our folks there. So, but they can get my books on Atlantis and Ancient America and things like that there. Excellent, folks. Don't go anywhere. My special guest today is Frank Joseph, and much more when we come back. This is Mel Fabregas, and you are listening to Veritas. Don't go anywhere. Thank you for listening to the first part of this important Veritas interview. To listen to the rest, and all of our material, proceed to the member section, or join the Veritas family by subscribing. Click on the subscribe button at veritasradio.com. You can make your purchase with a credit card, PayPal, cash, check, money order, and even cryptocurrency. We are now accepting, Bitcoin, Litecoin, and Ethereum. Don't forget to visit the Veritas store, for Focus Life Force Energy, MMS, CBD Pure Hemp Oil, Divinia Water, pure organic sulfur, flash drives with all our Sanitas and Veritas seasons, and other great products. And if you're listening on YouTube, like, subscribe, and share it. And click the bell to be notified when new interviews are available. Now, proceed to the members section or subscribe, to listen to the rest of the interview. You don't want to miss it. Thank you for listening to Veritas. Because you don't want to believe. You want to know. <laughs>